Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone, to the Keeping It Civil podcast. We have a very special guest this week, our wonderful podcast producer, Regina Revazova. Regina is the founder of Open Conversation, a podcast production company specializing in original content in partnership with public radio stations, private enterprises, foundations, and nonprofits. She teaches audio storytelling and podcasting here at Arizona State University at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Before joining ASU, she was a public radio producer here in Phoenix, and then before that in Las Vegas and in Washington, D.C., where she produced the NPR programs Tell Me More and Weekend Edition. But those professional accomplishments aside, Henry and I were honored to talk to Regina about her life journey, about being born and raised in Russia, working as a journalist under Putin's regime, and ultimately, due to a changed political atmosphere and Putin's war on journalism, fleeing with her family and seeking political asylum in the United States. She has a remarkable story, one that we thought would be of benefit to our listeners. So thank you, first and foremost, uh, to Regina for sharing, and thank you all for listening. Please enjoy. Thank you for joining us, Regina. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't we start by just having you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you got into journalism initially. I was born and raised in North Siberia, northern part of Siberia, a small, tiny mining town. Back 1955, Soviets discovered this huge deposit of diamonds in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing nearby, absolutely frozen land, no natural kind of settlement of human beings anywhere near. They couldn't start the town there because the harsh climate and the distances from anything really I think it was founded officially somewhere in late 60s. They finally started it somehow, and slowly, basically, it grew to a town of 20,000 people. During Soviet times, you had to have a special visa to even enter the town. It supplied 75% of Russian diamonds back then in the days, and my parents were engineers, so that's Mm. how we ended up there. You became a journalist, Regina. Is that right? In the post-Soviet Russia, or, or how did you become a journalist? Yes. I was born in mid-80s, 1984. And then by the time I was in the first grade, Soviet Union collapses, right? 1991. I remember I was exposed to journalism in the ninth grade because someone did a workshop at our school, just happened. I traveled back to where my ethnic roots are, which is Caucasus, when I was at the age of 17. And I enrolled in North Ossetian State University. I studied journalism there. Caucasus is, there's a lot of ethnic and religious tensions all the time, but from the standpoint of a journalist, it's really interesting region to cover for sure. So that's where my career started. And did you plan on staying there or did you want to return to Russia or were you interested in traveling abroad or elsewhere? Josh, here's a 
interesting part. When the Soviet Union collapsed, half of Caucasus became independent, which is current days Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. Mm-hmm. But North Caucasus state as part of Russia. We remember two wars in Chechnya that were trying to become independent. And so I was 40 miles away from Chechnya, basically, where I was studying and working. In 2004, the Beslan school siege happens. If you remember, that's the, a very sad event that set off basically my career. I started working for BBC. I reported for a bunch of outlets. Back then, in early 2000s, we had, a, what is it, a gulp of freedom, for sure. We could, the freedoms that we had back there, although it was very tough to report, it was nothing compared to what's happening today. So these were the yeah. early years of the Putin regime in the early 2000s, and you were in North Ossetia, which is very close to not only Chechnya, but also to um, to this contested region of, of South Ossetia. Actually, my mom is from South Ossetia. When you were studying there as a young person, was there any sense that the Russian state could try and annex these regions or destabilize the, some of the smaller neighboring countries like Georgia? Russia has been destabilizing its nearby nations since early 2000s, especially those that they consider to be some sort of traitors of old regime. Georgia, Ukraine, those that were more openly looking toward the West, a very dangerous thing to do. If you do something like that, if you express your willingness or your appreciation for Western values, because... West just lives better. It's just like things are better. Life is better. You know, there's law there. Kremlin never looked at it as, oh, that's your right. You're now independent country. So tensions with Georgia always. There was Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia in the middle of those tensions. And I remember, you know, we would spend every other summer at my grandma's in South Ossetia. I remember for 20 years, all those bombed streets and houses. Nothing was done for 20 years. Nothing new was built. Just, you know, this small town of 35,000 people living there in ruins, always. That was the childhood. You said that there were relative freedoms that you had as a journalist during this time. When do you think the tide started to turn to become more, more censorious, more oppressive? So, Josh, I was active in journalism from 2002 until 2007. I ended up getting political asylum in this country in 2008, which was a completely unexpected thing for me to even comprehend how I could be. There's something to say, although you can blame regime a lot, but when your country kicks you out (laughs) for, you know, you kind of... I think it's a very human thing to do to internalize it, like maybe I've done something wrong. When things became tighter and tighter, it wasn't that obvious until 22 years later, when we look back now, Mm. it became very, very clear that as soon as Putin got to power in a country that was kind of newly formed and there were no procedures and no uh, checks and balances that we have in this country, he quickly zoomed into three major forces within Russia then, that he considered to be a main threat to his unequivocal power, which is number one was media. Number two were independent businesses. You remember Mikhail Khodorkovsky? He was the richest man in the country. He was brought 
and he was, you know, sponsoring some opposition leaders and he was not always on the same page with Putin, not always, although he, you know, he wasn't against him that openly. He was brought into the courtroom in a cage, like... Mm-hmm. I remember a, that. A cage, right? So Russia operates in symbols. Everything is very, like, all those symbols are supposed to send a messages. That was a clear message that this is the wealthiest person in the country, the most powerful person in the country. Look what I can do with him. Don't mess with me. And no one ever messed with Putin at that level anymore. That was number two, business people. The third category was political opposition, right? Killings, we know lots of stories of poisonings. It's never ending. There are about 400 political prisoners, at least before the war in Ukraine started. You said you were forced out, your country forced you out. What did you mean by that specifically? I was an active reporter from 2000, early 2000 to 2007. I married another journalist, and my, at that time, husband, he was a regional editor for British-based organization, which is called IWPR, the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. I reported for them some as well. Mm-hmm. And why it's important, why I'm mentioning it right now, is that uh, what they do is they provide a lot of training for local journalists in so-called hotspots of the you know, if it's Afghanistan or Yugoslavia or Caucasus. So he was the regional editor there. His offices were searched. It's a standard playbook that Russia follows. Russians are not very creative when it comes to persecution. There is a certain formula that they continuously apply to different people. In my ex-husband's case, it was his office was searched. His computers were you know, removed entirely, never to be returned. And then two days later, you're basically are notified that you're under criminal investigation for whatever they found. Sometimes it's as simple as, I know some people are doing their prison terms for journalists, for these secret service men finding drugs under your couch, like something ridiculous. In his case, it was, oh, there was something on his computer that suggested that he was a foreign spy or, you know, that's the label, the good old Soviet label that is given to people that ostracizes you entirely, that puts you there and that that shames you, that basically, you know, you have a choice to stay, go to prison and never to come back out of it until Putin is in power, which has been now for 22 years, or leave. We got lucky that we had that choice and we fled. Some people do not have that choice. And you came then directly to the United States. Regina, was that your first destination after you fled following this search of your ex-husband's offices? My ex-husband left first. A year earlier, I refused to go. I somehow I had this delusion. Everybody had this maybe delusion, maybe illusion. I don't know what, what term would be correct here. But we we thought that Putin is almost over as a political power. I don't know. There was something in the air that suggested that Putin is gonna, not going to remain in, in power for too long. So I stayed for another year. And then I remember Valery, my ex-husband, he, on one of our phone conversations, he said, you know, things are getting really tough there. You need to join me now. I will not be able to get you out for the next seven years if you don't join me now because I'm applying for political asylum. I cannot go back. That's very, very clear to me. His brother was threatened, his family members. 
And you know what was interesting? I had to go through just a simple visa application process where I was invited to the United States, and then we were planning to go through political asylum, as we were advised by his organization. I went through the regular interview at American Embassy in Moscow, and then they said, within a couple of days, you're going to hear from us. A month passes, and I don't hear anything. Through my organization, I used to work for a memorial that was closed right before the war in Ukraine started. Through my organization, I asked my, at that time, director, hey, can you figure out what's going on with my visa? Visa was given to me two days after my interview, but it was held within some sort of services within, you know, inside Russia's FSB for a month and a half. And only when they were pressed, they released the visa and I could leave the country. So as you can imagine, for 14 years, of course, I haven't been back. And I yes, I flew into, what is it, Dallas International Airport in Virginia. Regina, how many journalists, independent journalists, remain in Russia today? What explains why some people have been able to stay and some people have had to leave? Do you think that people are able to really properly do proper journalism in Russia these days? How good is the quality of journalism coming out of Russia? It's been very, very difficult, as you know, over the past few years. There were lots of laws that basically were making the life of media extremely difficult. Before the war in Ukraine, they were trying to preserve some sort of version of like, oh, we're still kind of civilized country. You see, we kind of have still Echo Moscow. They were pretty independent. Nova Gazeta was pretty independent. After the war, they it looks like there was some sort of signal from the Kremlin that said, we don't care anymore about our international reputation. Just shut everything down. And they did. So, but over these years... Since 2005, pretty much, it was getting more and more like impossible to do any sort of reporting, any sort of reporting. Forget about criticizing Kremlin, some sort of more or less proper, balanced view on ongoing situation would just put you in tremendous danger. And there are laws that are against you. There, you know, there your own government is against you. And that would happen in every region, not just in Moscow, every region of Russia. The same exact story. And those persecutions, they, they never ended. So I'm curious, Regina, what brought you to Phoenix, Arizona, and Arizona State University in particular? Yeah, thank you for asking. This is an interesting story. So first of all, I want to tell you back in when I landed at the Dallas airport in Virginia, you wouldn't believe it, but 14 years ago, I barely could speak English. I could read, I could put together the words, but because I never anticipated leaving Russia, you know, you live in Russia and you understand that it's not the best country, but this is your country. This is your culture. This is where you were born. When you become a refugee, you know, when you're forced to just burn your bridges and just leave, of course, there's a lot of shock and there's a lot of sadness in, in that. But but on top of this, I, I lost years of education, experience and language it's, it's essential for journalists to have the language to be able to do the work, right? So I remember the funny story I will tell you just that exemplifies basically my lack, complete lack of understanding of culture, American culture, not just language. And when I landed at the Dallas airport, I was a foreign national coming in, right? So I had to go through the security. I don't remember what they're called, but 
And I clearly vividly remember there are two lines. One says non-citizens, another says citizens. And I'm looking at those two words, like two set of words, right? And here's how my thinking is going. I'm like, okay, citizen. There's, there's something, I have no idea what it means, but I'm like, that sounds like like city, like New York City, right? <laughs> so maybe one line is for those who are going to the cities. <laughs> Another line is for those that are going to villages. <laughs> maybe that's the point here in this country. Maybe that's like divide. I don't know. And so I, I took a line for citizens because I knew I'm going somewhere into the city. And then as soon as you realize people kind of point you, the people that work at the airport point you to the right line. And you're petrified every time you make that mistake, you find yourself so, what, what's the word, very incapable of making even that simple step in life. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely, you basically lost a, a means of navigating in life entirely. Where are you living through these years? Maryland, to Hyattsville, mm. Maryland. Mm-hmm. I studied, I did my master's. I started from the bottom again years later. Back in Washington, D.C., I started uh, interning at NPR, National Public Radio. I was exposed to amazing journalism that I will never forget ever in my life. Uh, My first show that I was working on was Tell Me More. They aired from, you know, it, right? Mm -hmm. So informally, we called it a black show, but it was like formally, it was like, oh, we are talking about culture and everything. So, and I remember it was 2014. You remember the killings, you remember the Ferguson, right? And I remember the level of the conversations people are having in this country all of a sudden, you know, and I'm this immigrant from Russia, right? And the level of discussions, the atmosphere of this honesty about pressing issues of the society, right? Just social justice, race. I was just dumbfolded. I remember thinking constantly during our editorial meetings, this is what Russia suffocates in its very, very beginning. You know, when, you know, imagine you're a seed and you're about to sprout, but, you know, they'll just pour the, you know, the the hot water on you. That's what Russia has done for generations. That's what we don't have. Exact that conversation about things that matter. Yeah. So how I got to Phoenix? So, yeah, I stayed with NPR. I was an intern, production assistant, associate producer for the headquarters. Then at the station in Las Vegas, I was a technical director and in, in, in producer at the uh, KNPR, Las Vegas State, NPR station. And then um, KJZZ. I started my own business later. And then as soon as I got to Phoenix, there was something, Josh, about this place. I was like... I really like the weather after 17 years in Siberia. I was going to say, why would they think that the person from Siberia would walk up to the desert? Well, we, we don't choose where we were born. So, oh. so when you know, you get here in the middle of the winter, I remember, and the, you have these citrus all over the place, and the weather is just beautiful. And I'm like, I, I really like this place. I can see how it can become my home. And all the, during this period, Regina, of course, the I guess you could say the sort of immediate prelude to what's happened in Ukraine is starting to unfold with the contested election in the Ukraine, the um, Euromaidan pro-Europe protests in the capital, the Russian occupation and annexation of the Crimean Peninsula, the beginning of the separatist war in the Donbass, and then 
whatever has happened since January, February 22nd, the more um, outright warlike situation between Russia and Ukraine. How how have you perceived that as a as a Russian in the United States? What's what's it been like to watch these events unfold, sort of over such a long period of time? Mm-hmm. When I got here, I think it was so shocking to my whole existence that I think for fourteen years, for the past fourteen years, until the war in Ukraine, I did all I could not to touch the subject of Russia. I was covering things that were important in the regions where I was covering things. I was studying American journalism. I was like, that chapter is closed. Now, when the war starts on 24th, that's it. That was just your life is back. You know, that that whole thing, that whole world was brought back in some sort of Hmm. like, like uglier form, if I can say that, you know, the world that you left you all of a sudden discover that it was, you know, brooding in its own things. And for some reason, Putin decided that Ukraine does not have any right to determine its future. It's not really a country. It's not even a culture. It's kind of the same people. And we need to exterminate that. That's what's been a a driving force behind now thousands of deaths, right? And so, of course, I started openly speaking about it. I lost 95% of my Russian connections, those few that I still had. Obviously, the way things are portrayed inside of Russia are very different. You know, Putin is saving the country. Putin is fighting, you know, the greedy West. And he is trying to get to Ukrainian Nazis. He's liberating poor Ukrainian people, right? Completely, like, it's Orwellian reality in Russia. The sugar is a salt, the day is a night. The war is a peace. That's what it is. This is a personal question, but are you resentful of having had to have left? And do you miss Russia? Do you wish you could return? And how have you dealt with that just on a personal level? Uh, because this is not a life you chose, as you were saying. This is a life that in some ways has been, you know, presented to you through extenuating circumstances. Mm -hmm. So Josh, imagine the house where you lived or grew up or whatever, you know, you're you're attached to that place. It's burned to the ground. Something happened. I don't know. The gas exploded. And you're in a state of shock. And you, you know, you go to work and you start talking about, oh, my God, my house just burned to the ground. And people are, oh, you poor thing, you know. Second day, you're still in a state of shock. You come in and you keep talking about it. And people, okay, fine. (laughs) You know, a week later, you keep talking about this house and, and people are like, okay, what time is it? I, I need to go to lunch. And then everybody kind of world moves on. If you don't move on with the world, if you don't let go of that resentment, of course you feel resentment. Of course you're angry inside. Of course you're even desperate and kind of feel like a victim. Early on, I remember it wasn't a conscious decision. Somewhere there, I made a choice to let go, to just entirely let go. Now I can tell you I raised three kids in this country. They don't speak a word in Russian. They're completely your regular American kids. I did that on purpose. 14 years later, culturally, I'm much more American. It's very hard for me to just, you know, engage in conversations around Putin and share the worldview of Russians today. Very, very difficult. Would I want to go back? No, Phoenix is home now. You know, I, I, and I love my home. And I tell it to my kids. 
As an immigrant, I don't think I'll ever take for granted those liberties and freedoms that I have in this country as a human being, as a woman. It's very obvious to people like myself on how many shoulders we stand today. So do I miss it? I do not. But when, when the war in Ukraine happened, I did feel resentment. I did feel anger. That old anger that I thought doesn't exist in me anymore came back because I knew exactly what they're fighting. I knew exactly what what they're facing right now in Ukraine. I knew exactly what Kremlin is, what their tactics are. We've seen it in Georgia. We've seen it twice in Chechnya. We've seen it in Aleppo, Syria. It, it brought a lot of anger, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Are you at all optimistic about the future of Russia as a potential liberal democracy or at this stage... You said you've kind of let go. Do you do you try not to even think about it? Or what do you think the future holds for Russia at this point? When, when there's a war, we're still in the midst of war, right? It's really difficult to make predictions. But I can tell you for sure, Henry, that of course Russia can have a free democratic society with all the liberties and us traveling to that country and enjoying the foods and the culture and, you know, those Russian dances, but not within the border it exists today. Because the problem with Russia is not that Putin is bad and the people are good, or that Stalin was bad, people were good. Tsars were bad, people were like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is the imperialism. Imperialism and the Russian people as the bearers of imperialism. And until the empire exists and the form it exists today, within the borders it exists today, it will keep killing, sabotaging, grabbing territories, provoking threatening with nuclear power, it will keep doing these things. Now, Russia is more than 80-something regions. One day, you know, if we have a smaller, much smaller countries on our maps, those are going to be very friendly countries with very unique cultures where we all would want to go travel and explore. Well, thank you, Regina, for sharing your remarkable story. Regina, you know, we ask all of our guests for a suggestion of something to read or watch or listen to on the topic of uh, civil debate and civil discourse or about contemporary politics and culture. And so we thought we would ask you the same question. What is something you would suggest for our listeners to read or engage with? So, Henry, because I'm producing this show and I listen to Josh and you all the time and your guests, right, I now I know a lot of things and a lot of things I remember what you guys say about yourself. So I do remember that, you know, for example, you don't, engage with social media right and uh and and you know i remember there was a conversation with jonathan rauch and everybody was sharing you know how they conserve the time and i remember you and josh sharing these stories i'm on the same page i i do have some social media but i what i don't do in life how i save my time is um i don't you know all these netflix shows that are super popular or amazon or you know whatever the platforms are i don't have cable tv I haven't had it for more than 20 years. Um, but one thing I want to tell you is that as soon as I, th I think it was CNN that reported that um, Netflix made available The Servant of People. The Servant of People is a 23-episode long show where Zelensky, nowadays president of Ukraine, stars. It's now available since I think late February, available on Netflix. It's the first show in seven years that I've watched. And I checked it out. It's heartbreaking to see beautiful Kiev, knowing that it's 
not the way it is in the show, but to understand Ukrainian culture and their difficult relationship with Russia, although it's not the highlight there, it's not the highlight at all, but what is happening, what happens with a very, very new democracy, such as Ukraine is, it's really, really good show. I highly recommend it. It's all in Russian, but it's with uh, captions. That's great. Thank you Thank very much. You very Thank much you for the it. recommendation. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're very welcome. The servant of people. I, I, don't, I don't know if I said it. <laughs> This has been very generous of you of your time. Thank you, Regina. Thank you for this opportunity to talk. Since the war, I I really appreciate these things, and, and more I can spread the word about what's happening there, of course, better. So thank you so much for having me. I know I speak for Henry when I say we're honored to, to work with you. Absolutely. Huge honor to work with you, too. Thank you so much.